Hey friends, what's up? Ladies and gentlemen, it's your good buddy Chase, and I'm in your ears. I'm very happy to be here. This is my favorite thing to do, is record the podcast intro. And we're going to go on a doozy today, a ride with my good friend, Nigel Barker. Now, many of you know Nigel from two different walks of life. Some of you photographers are like, awesome, we have another photographer on the show. He is a renowned fashion and celebrity photographer. And a lot of you all other folk know him as he is the judge and photographer, the celebrity judge and photographer for 18 seasons of America's Top Model. I don't even know anything ran for 18 seasons. Uh, he also started alongside Naomi Campbell in her show called The Face, and he recently kicked off a new show called Top Photographer Online. Really, really amazing guy. And he was actually a model in the way, way back. Didn't love it. He tells a great story about how he hacked the early phase of his career by basically he lived with a bunch of models in Milan and he would just tell them, come home, like don't wipe off your makeup or change your hair, come home. And he started photographing them basically around his house there. They, they put a bunch of models in, in like apartment buildings for whatnot. And he was able to just leverage his relationship with other models into an amazing photography career. One of the things that I love about Nigel, and if you're not a photographer, he is also a serial entrepreneur. He has started furniture lines. He kicked off his own gym in New York City with a couple other folks called the Dog Pound. And he's also the artistic director of some menswear brands, one in particular that I like called Flag and Anthem. Really, really cool guy. And his story from, to me, the punchline with, with Nigel's story, and you're going to see this thread throughout our conversation, is that you do what you can with what you have. So many of us are waiting for another day when we have more of this or a better X or a cooler Y. And Nigel does a fantastic job of cutting through all that stuff. And he, his accent, mm. <laughs> it just makes you want to talk to me. Sounds extra smart. So if I haven't seduced you into listening to the episode by now, you're going to want to just because he sounds really, really smart. Of course, jesting aside, he is a brilliant businessman and creator. I can't wait to share the show with you. We're going to go right into it now. But before we do, just a really quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. 
There you go. Now let's get into the show. Thanks, show, buddy. Bud. Been a long time coming. Good to have you. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to start off by saying the obvious. We're dressed the same. <laughs> no, let's be fair. You are dressed like me. Yes, that's true. Because you, if in the classic sense, I wore better. And if you're listening to this right now. Did you hear that? Some people are watching because you can watch this show. But a lot of people, I think, predominantly listen. And like we are, so we have the same freaking pants. And the shoes are slightly different, but only slightly. You know, it, it's, it's kind of scary. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what's going on, except for the fact that I, they are very comfortable. They are. This is why I wear them. I, it's like my wife's like, oh, you're wearing sweatpants again today, because they're glorified sweatpants. Anyway. Uh, my wife likes to say, oh, you, you think you're a soldier. Yes. Like, oh, come, on, come on, soldier boy. And she takes the mickey out of me. So, hey, you know, maybe that's what it is. We're wearing, we're wearing camo and... Uh, now that I just, I couldn't, it's not the best way to start a show, I'm not going to lie, but I couldn't, <laughs> for those people who are watching, like, wait a minute, they wore a uniform on the show? So, it's true. We also have a very similar career path in, except you were sort of a classic model. I was an athlete, so I spent a lot of time on the other side of the camera. I can see the guns. Then, then we transitioned to photographers and now sort of photographers plus entrepreneurs. So, yeah. Uh, that was no way an attempt to summarize the last 30 years of your life. But in Pretty Nigel good. Barker's own words, how in the hell did you get to sit right here? Give me the short version of the 30-year arc of your career. I, I mean, I think, look, the, the, at the end of the day, it was about, one, believing in myself and also having a dream, right? Dreaming about moving from England and seeing the world, originally traveling. And, you know, and I grew up doing a bit of travel. I was always fascinated with it. And I think when I first started modeling, and I never wanted to model, it was not a dream of mine actually, I kind of fell into it. Ironically, from a show called The Clothes Show in England, which was one of the very first um, modeling competitions in the 80s, right? Um, oh, and I didn't win, and I just, I got a top three, and someone said to me, oh, would you like a modeling contract? And, um, and I thought, okay, my year off between college, I mean, high school and college, yeah. I would um, do a bit year. of modeling. Yeah, Pre gap year. There we go. Exactly. Pro proper British term. Proper British term. I was trying to Americanize it yes, for you. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I did a bit of modeling. It went well. And I, the first thing that, that really struck me was just how interesting people in fashion are. Right? Yeah. I'd come from a very straight-laced boarding school, private school, English education system, you know, all boys' schools and things like that. Yeah. And, and um, all of a sudden, I was in the fashion world. And there were all kinds of characters. It was almost like this is where all the people, the fashionistas, the misfits, the, the odd bunch, everyone comes together and they're in this, this business. And I loved it. I'm like, I finally found home in a weird way. Yeah, your tribe. You know, it was like, it was my tribe. And there were people who, you know, who'd been told they couldn't do this or they shouldn't do that, you don't fit in. And, and you know, I just loved the creativity. People making stuff happen. And, you know, and I, I loved it and I didn't leave. My parents got very upset with me. Be careful, parents, what you tell your kids right. they can do. Because it was my mum who got me involved in this modeling malarkey in the first place. And uh, it led to sort of six years, me not going to medical school um, and becoming a photographer. Because after six years, this, I, mean, I said the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. So in the 80s, it was all about the sort of era of the supermodel. It were curvaceous models. There were these Amazonians, you know, Claudia Schiffer, Christy Turnington, Naomi Campbell. Um, and then came along heroin chic, and androgyny, Kate Moss, 
uh, designers, you know, like Anna Sui, um, Mark Jacobs. It was a very different time. And I'm not a small guy. Yeah, very, yeah. I wasn't about to become like, you know, I played rugby and I did all the, I rode. I I wasn't about to become androgynous. So I didn't want to throw away everything I'd ever done um, the past six years, my other degree. And um, I had always loved photography. And it wasn't until I became a model that I realized that photography was even a career choice. Yeah. There was no university degrees in photography back when we were kids. That was new. It was interns and assisting. Um, So, you know, I started to transition over and I I could see the industry was changing. And I took that opportunity to not throw away what I'd learned. And I also found and, and saw photographers similar to yourself but you know, at that when I was younger, who I could see weren't just doing photography, but were turning it into a business. Photographers like Fabrizio Ferre, who started Super Studios in Milan, who then opened Industria Super Studios in New York, uh, and had a studio business as well as photography business. Mm-hmm. He then started a fashion in, um, business called Ferre, which was his clothing line. He then had an airline. He bought an island. I'm like, <laughs> this is. I'm like, this is a photographer. Yeah. Right? I'm like, okay. I'm like. This is not what you think when you think photographer. For sure. A guy called Peter Arnell, who bought all the billboards down um, Houston Street in New York City. And if anyone wanted to advertise in New York City between Soho and Chelsea on Houston Street, you had to use him or his advertising company to, to shoot the advertising campaigns. It was like brilliant. Brilliant. And I'm like, these are different ways of marketing and branding and doing business within photography. And so I was inspired by these men and these women who were doing these sorts of things. And um, I tried to put that into my business. And I remember when Top Model came knocking. Tyra had done one season. I wasn't there for season one. It was on a small network called UPN, which doesn't even exist anymore. And it was a bit of a cult show. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was, you know, done quite well season one. And she came and said, oh, would you, you know, be interested in doing a photo shoot for next season? And I thought, okay, why not? It's a bit fun. And, you know, reality TV was new, if you can believe it. Um, This is back in 2003. And uh, I did a, they actually put everyone on tape back then. And I I was on tape and I I think it was partly my British accent because by all accounts, you know, every reality show cocktail has a dash of English in it. (laughs) Of course. Um, And uh, they liked the way I critiqued the models and what have you. And I got a call a month later. I didn't think I got it because it was a month later. And they said, look, you know, we've looked at your tape, we, we like what you do, we'd like you on the show, but would you consider a more permanent role as a permanent judge and a photographer? And I didn't really know what that meant, but I did know that it was a bit of a risk. And you think now, well, what's the risk? Because obviously I did well out of it. Um, and it's a part of my calling card, you know. But it was a risk because when you work in fashion, especially back then, high fashion and couture in that world that I was in and editorial photography, being on prime time, being sort of a bit of a sellout perhaps, mm-hmm. commercializing yourself, opening the doors of this exclusive fashion club to the world was not a popular thing with people. They were like, don't make a mockery of what we do. We're not prime time. You know, it, and I knew that that was that risk. And people warned me. But I also thought, and I could feel it, that times were changing. And I think being in touch with the zeitgeist of the time is very important. And I could see that people loved these kinds of shows. And I'm like, you know what? Sod it. This is about a pop culture, and I want to be a part of it, and I enjoyed that kind of feeling. And so I took the risk, and one season, for me, led to 18 seasons that I did. It became the number one show on, on primetime on a Wednesday night, 
We syndicated to 156 countries around the world and had a weekly viewership of over 100 million people watching our show. We were the number one television export out of the US for several years, beating uh, both Baywatch and Sesame Street. Ooh. Sorry, Grover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was something, yeah, you know? It's real. Yeah. And it was real. It became a real deal. And, and there was a whole generation of fashionistas and young photographers who grew up who, you know, saw what we did on that show and, and were inspired to take up the camera, you know? Who knew that who I, would be, I would be here, you know, like 20 years later and now everybody has a camera on their phone and they're all fascinated with the world of photography. I think that your story is fascinating because of all of the little decisions that you had to make. Yep. Like that you wanted to move from modeling into photography. That when photography was happening, you realized that it was changing. And then when it was changing, you decided actively that you were going to risk the thing that was the sure, which is being a part of this fashion community, with the unknown. So there's just a, a series of yep. probably you know, 20 decisions that have shaped your career. So if I'm gonna go back and tap into a couple of those little anecdotes along the way, um, what was it about being a model that you feel like helped you be a better photographer? So it's funny, you know, I actually didn't like modeling. And it's, it's ironic because I'm constantly talking to people about becoming models and helping them be <laughs> models and things, but I really just didn't love it. I kind of always felt awkward. Because it was boring or because it, there's a lot of standing around it was, if you don't know. But. It was, there was a bit of standing around. No, that wasn't the main reason. I actually felt a little silly, to be honest. I'll be real straight up with you. Yeah. I just felt uncomfortable. I, and maybe it's the control in me. Yeah. I'm quite controlling. <laughs> Probably very controlling if I talk to some people. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and so when you're not in control of your life and you're at the whim of someone else telling you what to do or the whim of someone else booking you or hiring you, it is not, but make, didn't make me feel comfortable. And so, and I didn't like just being arm candy. And, and to be honest, the fashion industry for men, male models, you are not the lead. You're yeah. always the sort of secondary. You're yeah. hired as a prop, yeah. you know? So it just wasn't fulfilling for me. But I did love the, the role that the photographer had or the creative director had or the editor in chief had, you know, the designer had. And I'm like, well, what, what, which one of these can I do? Yeah. Um, what, what, where is my potential here? And I saw the photographers, and I remember as a model, what I learned specifically was watching how all these different photographers I worked with hundreds over the years, and some of the biggest names in the business, how they treated me, how they talked to me, how they treated the people on their set, their team, um, how they worked a job, you know, and their finesse or their charm or their lack of it, or, you know, and whether they got booked again, whether I got booked again, uh, the way they lit their sets, uh, you know, to every aspect of it, yeah. you know, the whole production, and not just from one photographer that, you know, as, as if, that I could have assisted, but sort of several hundred. And it was very interesting, it, the, the reaction, and, and certain photographers, what they got out of me because of the way they talked to me. And I incorporated that into my style. Insanely valuable. That's like a crash course that you yeah. cannot possibly build on purpose that has to happen from you being able, you're deconstructing the best successes of every set that you've ever been on, right? You know, I do some quirky things, there's no doubt, as a photographer now, and I, I'm not apologetic about it. Some people even laugh at me, or even I, I know have spoken to my assistants and say, does he always do that, mm -hmm. you know? And they're like, yes, he does. But there's a reason for it, and you know, it's 
just what, let him do his thing. Because it, ultimately, there isn't one route to getting the job done. For sure. There's, you know, yeah. there's, you can all do it your own different ways. And as long as if you create something that is beautiful or, and it's authentic and it, it moves you and it's, you know, arrests people when they see an image, then you've done your job. How you got there no, is kind of up to you, totally. really. The thing that's it's, it's locked right here. This right. is the thing, how you got there. Like a that. chef. Yeah. I mean, how many ways can you cook something? But there are different ways, and it can taste different, but it can still potentially be the same thing, right? Um, so, you know, I do things like, and it's from my modeling days, I always get into my own lights, and I, I feel the light. I stand where the model is. And I, I really kind of embrace what that look, feels like. I also look and see what is the model looking at, yep. you know, because I'm looking at them. Totally. They look gorgeous. Yeah. And they're on a beautiful background because this is my scenery. And I'm like, oh, everything's stunning. Like, why, why isn't this working? And you look for what they're looking at. And half the time, the first of all, they're looking at me, which isn't always that great. <laughs> and then second of all, they're looking at a whole team of people staring at them, yeah. picking them apart, you know, and it could be a parking lot. Or it, you know, it might not be what I'm looking at. Yeah. So it's all of us, you know, you really require them to be actors, but they're not actors. So therefore you have to motivate them. You know, so there are all these sorts of things that I start to think about and I try to involve. And so I, there's a, a simpatico kind of thing. I, I empathize with them and I'm like, okay, let me put myself in your shoes. Um, so powerful. You know, we all have our own quirks and you know, some people never do that. I know that there are photographers who would never be photographed or don't like it. But I'm like, if, if I'm going to do it to you, I better be okay having it done to me. Well, I think that works for probably lots of careers and lots of ways and angles. But I think that specifically, um, and I'll, I'm, we share this, uh, you don't know this about me yet, but to me that's a, I have a very short modeling career, mostly in sports on the other side of the camera. But what one of the obsessions that I have is like a tidy set. I could tell, by the way. I could tell by the way you walked. What? That you used to have a modeling background. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, they always they all think they can hide it. Ah, you know, they can always ah, tell. It's a know. short, short, short stint, but not just. <laughs> but but we all have the things that you. What I loved is that you, you're not apologetic about it. Like right. this is the thing, and it's it is what you learn as you know on both sides of the camera, just being on hundreds of sets, is that the, how you get there becomes your thing, and the fact that you're empathetic for the model might create or draw out of them something that some other photographer can't get. I'm like, the fact that this is about as messy as I'll let my set get right here. There's a bag over there and there's a couple, like. I'm and, the same way. Yeah, because it, to me, when I look at just stuff strewn over the place, it creates anxiety. So we'll hide it in a different place. Just I want everyone to feel like this is a space that feels good when you're into it. And it's sure this photograph needs to look good, but the whole place has to feel oh, good. Yeah, no, I have OCD, I think. I mean, I, I, it comes down to like my assistants know that the wires on the ground, the cables leading away from my lights, have to be in lines that are angled, and they have to be taped down. Let's talk about the camera yeah. operators here. So it's yes, they're uh, laughing. They're laughing. Because I can see it's that. True. But it's a th so, and when I take pictures, and this is me, and I'm other photographers out there, I'm not hating on you, no. but I'm not a big fan of like people shooting on the beach when the ocean is going like that in the background. Yeah. Or, or I'm like. What happened? Is there an earthquake? Yeah. You know, I don't, did you fall when you took this picture? <laughs> That's just me, okay? My horizons are damn straight. I have all about symmetry, and other people love those pictures. So it's, it's again, beauty sure. is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. It just drives me nuts. Well, <laughs> we are similar in that. I like the fact that you, I think empathy is a word that has 
long overdue, and there's a realization in, in our culture that empathy is one of the, I think, it's going to really help us in the next chapter of, of culture because understanding how someone else feels is part of, a, it's part of the human equation. So the fact that you've been on this side of the camera before you became a photographer, um, but now I want to shift gears and talk about how in particular did, when you, like, what was your first step or series of steps when you're like, okay, cool, I want to go do that. I want to do what that guy or that girl is doing mm -hmm. right there. What, what did you what did you go because you mentioned it's not really happening in a four-year degree nowadays or things like creative live it didn't exist no so what did you do and then what would you recommend for others and just to be clear this goes beyond photography we're talking about photography because that's Nigel, Nigel's background as mine as well but similar is probably true in a lot of things so I, I had to use what was available I think is is you know, the, the reality of the matter and I was lucky too because um, I was modeling at the time, and so I looked around everyone I was working with, and they were models, right? So there I have this sort of army of uh, you know, good-looking, attractive people who are in the business who want to be photographed. Yeah. And one of the hard things most photographers face is, well, who do I photograph? I don't know any models. Yeah, my friend right. Joey. My friend yeah. will, you know, would you let me take your picture? So that was my paradigm. I was living in Milan, and I actually lived in a building that had hundreds of models living in it. And every day, they would come back from work if they had a job, which most of them didn't. And, um, you know, I would say to them, please don't wipe your makeup off. Leave your hair the way the professionals have done it, and we will do portraits. And you, I will give you the pictures. Because half the time, you didn't get the pictures of your job, so they might be six months later, and the model's already returned to the U.S., the Italian tear sheet, and you hope you get the magazine somewhere when you live in Ohio or something, <laughs> and you're just not going to get it. Yeah. So I'm like, let me at least take a portrait of you. So they all loved it. So they would come in, and I've got to say that most of my original portraits, but I think, were nudes of most people because I didn't have any clothes. They don't <laughs> let you walk home unless the model steals the clothes. Right. You know, she doesn't come home with the clothing, but she does have the hair and the makeup on. All right, so we're like, okay, and I have these great portraits of these beautiful girls, and, and including my wife and my sister-in-law, who I met back then, 25 years ago, in Milan, and every day they'd have different hair and makeup, and. We would create these great shots in Milan with these you know, beautiful lighting in these old Italian streets. Um, very, very simple, black and white mostly. And I was just honing my eye. So that's how that aspect of it started. I built up a portfolio. And we, I think I figured out, I photographed almost a thousand models in the first two years. So I had a huge body of work, very consistent because it was all very similar scenario style, lighting, feel. And, and, I, and of course, that's important too. Yeah. Because, you know, yes, you know, people like to know when they book you, what are they going to get? You know, and of course, it doesn't mean you can't do something else, but it does freak people out when they see 100 things and they're yeah. like, oh, which one are we going to get today? Yeah. You know, so that was where I started. And, I, and I've always called things now, and I, for, for whatever reason, I call them series, a series. And it's a sort of a series of my career, an element of my career that's a style that I shot and a look and a feel. And, it changed when I moved to Paris because the light was different and the people were different and the, the models were different. It was a little bit more chic and shishi in Italians, in Italy. And it's everyone who goes there, they're a little bit more rough and ready and sort of sexy. And Paris was more upscale and, you know, the models started wearing clothes. And, <laughs> you know, it got to England and everyone was skinny and odd looking. And, and I went down that road and I moved to the States. And when it's when I moved to America that I took the risk on myself 
I stopped modeling completely. I only uh, decided to become the photographer. I was reinventing myself. No one really knew me over there. I'd only done a very little bit of modeling five years ago. And I went to the meatpacking district, which in hindsight was brilliant, but then was scary, terrifying. Yep. And it was the only reason why I went is because it was the only place I could afford to go. You know, and I remember when I first started looking for an apartment, I, I looked in the Village Voice. I, I saw uh, a, you know, an opportunity of an apartment I could be a roommate in. And I went and knocked on the door, and it was right there on 14th and 9th. And I opened the door, and towering above me in suspender belts and heels uh, was this lady who said, Hi, are you Nigel? Come to see your room. And I was like, uh, yes, uh, please, can I have a look at my room? And I was this young man, and she walked me in, she goes, she pulls open this curtain, and, she says, and then above the bed, and the bed was just a bed with a curtain around it, were handcuffs hanging from the bed top. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> what am I saying? That'll be your room. And I was like, okay. Um, well, the funny thing is, is that I, I ended up staying. And I, <laughs> and I... No warning signs here. <laughs> no warning signs here, right? But, I, but living in the fashion industry, I'm like, okay, I can deal with this. This is yeah. cool. Let's just yeah. rock this world. And I got a studio, which was like a 4,000 square foot studio. Um, and, the, you know, models used to show up. There was an active meatpacking plant at the bottom. And they would look and they would say, oh, hi, I'm here to see Nigel Barker for a shoot. I think I'm at the wrong place. I must have the wrong number. And I would look out the window and I'd see them. And I'd be like, no, no, you're here. Um, climb over the carcass. Come up to the third floor. And don't worry about the speakeasy on the second floor or the club called Hell that's in the basement. Um, I'm up there. And it was, that's how my career started. And, and you know, it, by having that space, which was a risk because it cost me money to have the big uh, studio space, but it also allowed me, uh, you know, to, to shoot whenever I want. And I loved the Andy Warhol factory concept. Of course, same. You know, Big inspiration for me, yeah. Just being able to have whatever you want, whenever you do, do whatever yeah. you want, and create whatever you want at any time of the day and night. Yeah. Yeah. We, I'd throw parties, everyone would come, and then heart, you know, by 2 o'clock in the morning, everyone would be in the mood to get their photograph taken. We'd yeah. set up the lights, we'd wheel them out. Yeah. People would be doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. We'd start shooting them. Yeah. And the parties became well-known in New York City, and it was, that was really how I, how I started. It was a lot of fun those days. Brilliant. Yeah. So... There's this very clear transition from model to photographer. You've already shared the story of going from photographer to getting the call at the America's Top Model, but we haven't really talked about the trajectory of the show. So you came on after shooting being a photographer in an episode, and then you went like full on there, being a regular on the show. How was it in you know like the the sausage? factory of making television it's very different in real life when you're on set every day and versus what gets manufactured and shown to the world so give me a little bit of an arc of sort of what was going on in your mind and on the show and how was it in real life relative to what was being put out on the telly you know it was very exciting to be honest it was a an exciting time all around television was still obviously very popular now it's very it's different it's yeah. changed enormously how people were receiving their content. But the day-to-day -day was, 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 was a lot of fun. You know, we were really were creating, um, making people's dreams come true, I think is the way to describe it. Uh, a lot of people were interested in the fashion industry. They had been forever. And this was the very first time people were being allowed into it. And I, I did feel very responsible for the contestants. 
um, you know, this was their dream and they were there and they were willing to try anything. And, you know, you felt responsible for them. You know, I always sort of joke that I was sort of loco parentis, which means I was there basically their parent or guardian on set. And I always had that feeling for them. I think, too, because I used to be one of them. Yeah. And so I, I looked at them and I felt so fragile for them. I'm like, okay, we've got to make sure this is a good experience and that you grow from it. And I, I do believe that's partly why I was the longest standing judge on the show. I mean, I was there for 80-odd seasons and I saw many other people come and go. And interestingly enough, from a business standpoint, the show, and, it was, and that risk I talked about earlier, how it was a risk going on top model, the magazine sponsor was um, Jane magazine and then Nylon and then it became 17. The main mag- sponsor for the actual show was were things like Walmart and it then moved to Covergirl. But they were very commercial. They were very, it, w- it was not high fashion. Very mass. Media. Very mass. And, you know, I had, before that I was working for Paper magazine. I'd done stuff um, uh, for Interview magazine and I was doing all this sort of cool stuff, I, you know, great fashion houses were calling me and asking me to do shoots and then they stopped they stopped calling just like that and I was like "Ooh, okay ouch so now what um how do I monetize what I'm doing how do I turn this into an actual opportunity and of course I realized that what I was doing was I was bringing fashion to the masses I was that voice for them a voice of reason an expert in my field and I'm like, okay, well, that's not a bad place to be. Yeah. That's actually a rather good place to be. You know, I don't need to preach to the choir, who, you know, people, or everyone who's already got the money and in fashion. How about we do something of our own? And you know what happened, of course, is that the show became so incredibly successful that magazines like Vogue, 10 seasons deep, came knocking. Had the to ones come. who had, had to come. Had to come. The ones who laughed at us and said, oh, you shouldn't do this, that's not right. Uh, you know, it's making a mockery of fashion. We don't hang people from bridges. We don't put spiders on people's faces. We don't put, you know, do photo shoots on water. And, you know, it, this is all silly stuff. And actually, every single shoot we did on America's Next Top Model was referenced on some fantastic photo shoot that had actually happened in history. And absolutely, people put models in balls of, of, of glass on the Seine, you know, um, in, in Paris, and these are, there are fantastic classic pictures with people with animals, and it, yeah. all that stuff is real. And, and yes, sometimes hanging from bridges. It doesn't happen every day, but we're making TV, so we make it exciting. Yeah. And so on our show, it does happen every day. We, we, this is what could happen. It was the fantasy, which is what fashion is built on anyway. And so 10 Seasons Deep, Italian Vogue, not just American Vogue, but the hippest, most editorial, cool Vogue there is, Italian Vogue, came on as our magazine sponsor. One of the guest judges who sat next to me became uh, Andre Leon Talley, editor-at-large of American Vogue. Um, and we had the likes of, you know, Versace's, uh, Missoni's, um, and every major designer and supermodel come on as our guest judges for the week and it, 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 the, the whole thing changed dramatically. And I, I always thought to myself, secretly, I laughed at myself and thought, really? So what, now we're in vogue? So we, you know, 10 years later, who's missed the boat? Yeah. Or quite frankly, you know, I think we were, were perhaps more in vogue than vogue was. And they knew it. Isn't that weird? The same thing could be said, I feel like, if you 
we're just stepping back and saying like that that what is not in fashion becomes fashionable and to me the folks who are to this day interesting as people as visionaries as leaders just look at Andy Warhol like he was talking about how art and commerce were fascinating like it wasn't just being yeah. like so um, true to art I think he said the most interesting kind of art is business or something yes yeah, you know, right. some great line like yeah. that and when you can see a handful of examples of people who are constantly re reinventing themselves, they're actually setting the trend, even at the time where it's very painful for others to follow. Like, oh, they're crazy, what are they doing? And I think the same could be said in basically any industry, if you look at people who yeah. are doing things that are sort of renegade. What I want to tap into and ask, this has been great storytelling, but did you know, or did you realize that there was a small chance that it could go like this, but you were willing to risk it anyway? I think it was a bit of both. It was definitely a bit of both. There were times when you didn't know and you had to shake the dice a little bit. But, you know, you have to also know what you're gambling with and you have to be ready to ante up and you have to be also be ready to leave the table. You know, so that, and there are moments where you're like, okay, I've done this, I've made you know, some good money, I've, I've done what I needed to do, time to move. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very difficult when you're doing really well, actually. And there was a time, of course, when my, I actually was fired off my show, off America's Next Top Model. I got fired. Um, and it was painful. With hindsight, would I, I may have left earlier, actually. The funny thing is, is that a week later, I got a job offer from Naomi Campbell and The Face. And I, she asked me to host her show. And I went straight in without even a break in hosting her show for two years. And uh, it, it was complicated to do because Naomi was not good friends with Tyra at the time or any of that kind of business. But, yeah. but actually, it was an eye-opener for me. And, it, and again, f further cemented my position as being someone, someone who was on television talking about the business yep. um, once again. Um, but um, no, you, you, know, you, you don't always know, and you do have to take risks. But, you, and you, but every single time that something comes up like that, you've got to do your best. You've got to try your hardest. You've got to be as smart as possible. Um, and if you're not enjoying it, that's another part of it. Yeah. And I'm incredibly passionate about everything. And I don't take up anything just and do a little bit of it. I'm like, no, I'm either 100% in or I'm not in at all, you know. And uh, I, I, I feel that about life in general, you know. Well, we have the same, I had the same uh, experience, and I think we were laughing before we started the cameras rolling about how historically photography wasn't about giving away all of your trade secrets because that was the thing that the business was made on. And right. not dissimilar to you, I saw where this world was going and said, wait a minute, information wants to be free and this is all going to be common knowledge soon. So let's start telling stories about what it's like and start you know, providing a vehicle for other people to tap in. And that for me and for and our Creative Live, like that was a, an ignition point. So I think that this is a very, um, you've listed two ingredients. One, sort of listening to the industry and looking at where it's going and not where it's necessarily been and also this the secondary piece that you just fill in for us of passion so is there some particular magic third ingredient because you have to know an industry well enough to step into it that's what you talked about like i knew yeah. fashion i knew photography a little bit and i could see myself in that role i was very passionate about it 
Is it just those two ingredients or is there so some other third? What I would ingredient? say would be with this is that the word passion is interesting because it's, yes, it's you're passionate and I am passionate and I'm driven and I'm competitive and with myself as well as other people and everything else, right? Um, but I'm also compassionate for, to myself mm -hmm. as well. And that when I say that I love myself, I mean that in the right sense. I, I mean that it's important to love yourself. You've got to be kind to yourself. You can't be too judgmental. You can't be too tough. You have to know when, you know, you, I always say, look, just do your best. I may not be as good as you. I may not be as good as the next person. But I tried my best. And I'm proud of that. You know, and that's a big part of life. I think, too, you know, if you think you're better than everyone else, of course, there's the word conceited. That's what that is, right? But if, you know, you're okay with, I ran my fastest. I came in second, but I ran my fastest. I couldn't have run faster. Hey, what are you going to do? You're going to beat yourself up about that forever? Doesn't make any sense, right? So giving yourself that opportunity. But when, when you add these things together, I think for me it was the understanding that I was always going to try my hardest. I was going to put 100% in, 120 if need be. I would be okay with that. And I would, you know, there's the element of risk as well. With those things, the magic is when all of a sudden something spontaneous happens. And spontaneity, for me, is really the American dream in a way. It's the word freedom. Because only when you are truly free can those two special things happen. And I see it on set all the time. When the magic happens, when something I wasn't expecting, and I'm like, wow, and literally the hair on the back of my neck stands up on end, and I'm like, I just got something really special. And I didn't know that was gonna happen. And, there was the, it's, and it was the buildup of all those things, and it's just sponta spontaneous. Uh, and it's very hard because you can't bottle spontaneity, yeah. you know, it, 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 but it is allowing spontaneity to happen. Yeah. You know, so, and it, and it comes from, I think, a lot of these things, these sort of other attributes that are, if you allow that moment to happen. Well, there's also, I'll reference another conversation we had before. It's like, it's not just the photograph that makes the photographer. We talk about the end result. Yes, but it's kind of, can you get that result over and over and over because people are betting on you and they have to bet on something that is a known quantity, whether it's right. being able to look at your portfolio. But you also described uh, how it's the, in a photographer, you, I think you can say this in any career, it's like it's the total package. It's all of the things that you can bring to that moment. Totally. And when I want to, A, have you comment on all of the things that are beyond what people think about when they think of a photographer. Like what are the other things that you control for? So that's question one. And then question two, is it in that world that are you really like creating a fertile environment for spontaneity? So question one, like what is it beyond just the photograph that you as a photographer are setting up? You talked about client management or inspiration right. or the set. So just tell us a little bit of the story of that. It really, for me, and again, there isn't like a, there's no... There's no list. There's no list, or there's no even magic potion, right? I mean, people often say, uh, you know, what, what three things can I do? Or, you know, can you give me some advice? I want to do what you do to do with your career. Like, it's like, that's just never going to happen. And, yeah. and you may have a better career than me, right? So, but there were, having a team has always been incredibly crucial. I'm the sum of my parts, and my parts, you know, are everyone who works with me and for me and around me, and you know, and I met my wife as I mentioned earlier, 25 years ago, 
with her twin sister and they became my muses. And I had these incredible muses which helped me work and build my portfolio. But my wife and I have also worked hand in glove together for years. And everything I do, every shoot that I do, her fingerprint is on it as much as mine. And many of my photo assistants have been with me for a decade and 12 years and another 15 years. And, you know, and the, everything they do, it, it's a part of the DNA of, of what I do. Yeah. You know, it isn't just me. Even if sometimes it is me and the model, there's so much that has gone into that. Even my mood that day, even the, the mood on set, my hair and makeup artist, with the way they work with people and how they make people feel, on, you know, the way my, the stylists dress people. It's not just having any old team. It yeah. has to be this team. You, know, and it's, you can't trade people. It's like having your own family. Yeah. You can't trade your brothers and sisters because you don't like them today for yeah. someone else and say, oh, it's still family. Yep. It's like, no. Even if you don't get on, it's your family. Yeah. And, and these people become your family. And some days you, they rub you up the wrong way. Other times you love each other to death. And when you don't see each other, you miss one another. Yeah. And it was that team, I think, was the, the secret source. And hey, you know what? You can build your own team. It doesn't have to be my team. Yeah. That was the team that worked for me. And that's the wonderful thing. And I think most great people I know have wonderful people around them. And, and, have a, you know, they, and they're good at delegating. Yeah. They need to know how to do that. They need to, know, need to know how to manage people too, as well as themselves, and have people there to manage them. You know, I, I always say you have got to speak to the boss, and I, I direct them to my wife. I'm like, yeah. you know, if she doesn't approve, or she's not going to do it. <laughs> and, and I remember people like photographers like Helmut Newton. You know, his his wife worked all his photo shoots. She picked the models, she set up the ideas and the concepts, and he went and shot them. You know, and people often will credit Helmut for everything, but actually his wife is very instrumental. The same is true for me, by the way. Kate has been absolutely critical in my, in my in every element of my career, and, and I try and recognize her as you do your wife of 25 years. Same, 25 years. Amazing. Okay. Congratulations. Um, so, if it's fair to say, it's the total package. You talked about team. You talked about uh, the environment. We've already there talked about what it feels like on set. So, those are the parameters. Now, is it all of those things? that gets to culminate in this magic moment, the serendipity, or is there some other magic that you're trying to infuse in the moment? Because that's the thing that people, I think when they're listening to you right now, they're like, yeah, but how do I get, where's the zhuzh, how do I get that thing? You know, the zhuzh is inspiration, probably, and that is a love of life. You have to appreciate life. You have to literally wake up in the morning and be willing and open to be inspired. People say to me all the time, oh, what happens if you're not inspired or you're, you know, you're not, you, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to shoot it. Or, and I'm like, how? I literally sort of, I get a bit stuck with that question because I'm like, I don't really know because I literally wake up and I'm in, in, inspired by the rain, I'm inspired by the smell of cooking, I'm inspired by you know, the color of, the, of things around me, I'm, I'm someone's story and, it, good or bad. I mean, I love New York City because it's dirty and smelly and stinky. That actually inspires me because how can you sing the blues unless you have the blues? You know, so there's, you know, and what a beautiful music the blues is. Yeah. You know, and like most great love songs are of heartbreak, not of actually, you know, being in love. So it's, there are, you, you need the pain as well as the, you know, as, as the, the nice side of life. And 
Heck, I hate to say it, but it's one of the reasons why I never moved to LA. I love Los Angeles, but every time I'm there, I'm like, hey, maybe I'll just hang here in the garden today. Because <laughs> it's know? so easy. It's so nice. You know, and I'm like, I go back to New York and I'm like, it's Wah. snowing today. And it's, it's tough yeah. and everyone's pushing and stress. And, yeah. But then I do my best work. Um, and I, I got to say, some of my best shoots have been when I've had a hangover. So, hey, you know, <laughs> it happens. You know, they, there are sometimes that pain and that you have to push through. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's being inspired. And it, you, if you're not inspired, of course, it's difficult to, to do anything. Um, but I feel very inspired all the time. I, everything, I listen to small things. I, drops of water in the shower, the noise, music, anything. I love music, I love colors. I, 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 I go out, I see the Seattle sky, and people are like, oh, it's gray. It's, I'm like, yeah, no, but it could be really emotional, it could be really powerful, it could be really angry, or it could be really soft, it could be really gentle, it's misty, it's like a cream. I'm like, the, 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 I know that's how I yeah. see things. Yeah. And I think that for me helps me in general have those moments of spontaneity and, have, and, and, and I see opportunity. I see promise in people. I'm like, I'm, I love people. You know, I've done documentaries in Haiti, two of them. I've done a documentary in Africa on pediatric AIDS, and I'm fascinated in the human condition and how people in the most adverse of conditions push through, power through, and decide that they're not going to accept this crappy life, and actually they're going to make something of it, even though they've got beyond nothing, yeah. lost all their family members and live in a tent in a tent city, and are, you know, a, a little girl, and she's trying to get educated and go to school every day and, and trying to make something better for herself, and you see these people and you're like, how can you not be inspired? Last question, because I've, I've already kept you a couple of minutes longer than good. I promised. Um, because he's got to get back to his creative live class. Um, we also talked about this before the show, but we never really got to complete our thought. And it's how we've both, as photographers, taken on a lot of other interests. And then we're doing things that transcend the original concept of photography. It's a little bit full circle. Sure. Like when you talked about some of the folks that have inspired you, like, wait a minute, these people are doing so many different things. Now with Creative Live, you with your furniture lines mm-hmm. and, and Dog Pound, the gym in New York. What is it about this next aspect of your career that you're most excited about? And what, is it, what, what, do, what do the rest of us have to learn from it? I, you know, I think it's one of those things. It's a couple of things, right? So it, some, of them stuff, some of this started, like you mentioned, I have a furniture line. It's called NB1, and it sells this store called Art Van in, in the Midwest. And the gym, the dog pound, they're very different. I have an investment in this T-shirt company that I'm wearing right now. And um, I have an investment in a wine company and all these different things. They're all very diverse. They're things I love. Right? They're businesses I love. And also, I thought to myself, as a photographer, I've never waited around for people to hire me. I've never said, you know, I hope I get a job this year. Or, and, and who's going to hire me? I literally go to people and say, you should hire me. This is what I would do for you. This is what I, how I feel your campaign should look. And um, if they can't afford to pay me, I'll say, OK, how about this? I'll take a bet. Or they don't want to pay me. Or I decide I don't want to be paid, which is another thing. Yeah. I'm like, look, how about I take a slice of your business? I will shoot everything. I'll handle your marketing and your advertising, and I'll turn it around for you. And this is what we're going to do, and this is the plan. Um, and utilizing everything I have, my celebrity and my social media and everything else, and my talent as a photographer to tell these stories. Um, 
And it's been a very interesting kind of business decision. And I remember with Art Van specifically, I was brought on as a photographer to shoot their catalogs and campaigns. And I remember talking to Mr. Van himself at a meeting. And he says, so Nigel, you know, what do you see for our, you know, what would you like to do for us? What would, what's your vision? And I looked at him and I said, well, you know what I'd really like to do is my own furniture line. He looked and he literally went, laughed and went, so, no, 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 I don't mean, I, I mean, how, what do you see as far as shooting our current campaign? And I'm like, yeah, no, I know that's what you meant, but I want my own furniture line. And he looked at me and said, okay, young man, you know, and he was in his 90s, like, okay, young man, um, can we just but get really, back on yeah. track? You know, and anyway, two years later, he came to me and he said, you know what? We sell Kathy Ireland, we sell Cindy Crawford. They're both models. I don't see why a photographer who shoots models and actually creates the imagery shouldn't have his own line of furniture. Are you still interested? And I'm like, I was hoping you'd come round. Um, and here we are now, several years deep into it, and I love it. I, we have over 200 and something SKUs and travel the world in, and with them making this furniture and photograph it. I, I work with, the, with all these designed, great designers, and it's become a love of mine. And I've always loved creating. Mm -hmm. It's being creative, whether it's the gym and creating a look and a feel for that and the organic nature of how that started, a group of friends working out together, whether it's a T-shirt company where you know, I, I, I felt there was a, a hole in the market in a certain age group of, of young of me, of men who leave college but you know like a certain look but can't afford another one and here's that right price point for them and filling that hole to a wine company that in a world of wine which is so saturated where it's so kind of pompous people don't understand it they don't know the words to describe it they just know that they like it and I meet some cool, fun New Zealanders who created a wine and the warning label on the wine bottle says, um, be careful, could contain traces of bloody good wine. And I thought, that's me. Those are my people. Those <laughs> are my people. Let's have some fun, you know. Um, and so I look for ventures and opportunities like that. But it's really about people who are willing to shake it up, take a risk and be creative. It's really hard to end on anything but that. <laughs> We've gone a little bit over. Super happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks, Thank bro. you so much. And now, we gotta go get a drink. I'm sorry, that's not gonna be filmed. <laughs> but I appreciate it. You, you know how to find Nigel. You're just at Nigel Barker that's everywhere it. on social, right? Yep. Um, track him down. Give him a shout out when you see this. And we'll see you again probably tomorrow. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day 
uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out there, just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right, until again, uh, probably tomorrow, I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow, and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.